Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Michael McGee. Talking science and drinking beers with researchers down at the pub. So join us with a brew and let's cheers to science. This is the seventh episode in the third season of the Science of Beers podcast. This season is made in collaboration with our friends at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. Our guest today is the founder of that institute. Francesco Sanino is Professor of Theoretical Physics at another group that he founded and now directs, the Centre for Cosmology and Particle Physics Phenomenology, otherwise known as CP3 Origins, at the University of Southern Denmark. Before his current role, Francesco has been working at the Niels Bohr Institute, he has been working at Yale University, he's been working at the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, and he has not one, but two PhDs. So I really can't think of anybody better to sit down with a beer and ask, what is the universe made of? And we do that by looking at a beer and seeing what secrets of the universe are held in the glass. It was really clear for me that Francesco's driven by the fun of curiosity and a genuine love for the beauty of nature and German Weissbier. We get into a lot of different subtopics in the history of the universe, so you'll be able to see in the description a timestamp for all the different topics, and uh, you'll be able to see some links as well to some talks that Francesco has given before at the Danish Institute for Advanced Study. If you like what you hear, uh, go back and listen to the to the rest of the season. We cover a different topic each episode. Also, tell a friend about the podcast. Give us a review, especially if you're listening on iTunes, and share the podcast. I am your host, Michael McGee. Cheers to science. Francesco, thank you very much for joining me yes. for, for a, a glass of delicious German Weiss beer from Bavaria. Skoll. Skoll. Refreshing as it is on this beautiful warm day. So... <clears throat> You're a, a theoretical physicist, is that right, Francesco? Yes. Yes? Yes, and it's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> it, can, it can do anything which is more cool than that. <laughs> there's rock star and then there's theoretical physicist. Right. As, uh, one friend of mine used to say, it's like a rock star without the groupies. <laughs> so so your, your, your job is to think about how the universe works. Yeah, maybe just not to think about it. They would probably won't pay us if we just think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> try to figure it out and uh, try to write it down. And once you understand things, then you can also manipulate them and you can, for example, you know, transform them into engineering. And then our sister sciences like engineering, chemistry, and so forth, so on, they can actually uh, use what we do um, to then. Uh, do amazing things in the world, like GPS. GPS, so... so Global position system. So are, you, are you talking about how quantum physics links in with GPS? General relativity, yeah. If we're not for Einstein, we wouldn't be able to know where we are on Earth. Please explain. Yes, I mean, <laughs> the global position system uses basically general relativity to be able to accurately tell us where we are on Earth. So only took a hundred years from the theory to be able then to construct instruments to be able to uh, use the theory accurately. So we do need to correct for uh, general relativity uh, uh, corrections to be able to to get the right uh, location on Earth. So from this to 
your iPhone. Is that, is that because uh, our phones in our pockets on Earth experience uh, experience gravity more than the, no, the no? It's just that to the, in order to make sure that we can locate you or locate me yeah. so precisely, we need to be up, with, through satellites. The satellites need to be synchronized in, in with an extremely accuracy, yeah. both their geolocation and the timing. And to do that, you need to correct for uh, their uh, precise position that is also affected by gravity. Would a clock on a satellite experience time differently than a clock in my pocket? Well, I would say that anything that moves compared to you, right, in that reference frame will actually have a display and go with the, you will have to synchronize with you, right? And so that actually requires a special relativity in the case, not general relativity to this extent. So to, you need to synchronize properly. And since it's relative, their time will be different than yours. So you have to communicate and correct it for that. Of course, for anything you do on Earth, like, you know, if you're going on your bike, then you don't care so much. The difference will be so tiny. Mm -hmm. But because anything cannot travel faster than the speed of light, we have to adjust for that. So there's real-life implementations for... for Immense, yeah. For example... Imagine what can we do with the laws of nature we have not yet understood. (laughs) Well, well, this, <gasps> this is the thing, you know. I, I, I'm a, I'm a biologist, but, I, yes. but I would be interested. I'm in, really in, sorry for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested in reading about physics and, and trying to wrap my head around it, which I hope you're going to be able to help me today with. Yeah. Um, but some of the things that really don't, don't really, I can't compute. Yes. Make this world go around. They're responsible for the electronics that we've got and GPS, yes. as you said. But I have a. a a special challenge for you today, Francesco. Yes. <laughs> Please, <laughs> hit me. <laughs> it's the Science and Beers podcast. Let, yes. let, let's work in the beers with the science right. here. Yes. Can we zoom in on this delicious glass yes. of German Weiss beer? Please, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, allow me to start. Yes. So, so, I'm looking at this beautiful golden liquid with uh, a creamy white top mm-hmm. and we're going to really zone in there and mm-hmm. um, into the actual molecules the molecules that are that are giving us a little buzz at the moment yes the ethanol yes so that's that's a molecule with uh, three different kinds of atoms carbon yes. hydrogen and yes. oxygen linked together yes. three covalent bonds so they're sharing electrons i know that that exists yes i know that that, that happens but uh, can can you Explain to me the, the yeah what's I mean, going on there. How, how do they stick together, and how do electrons yeah. and protons work together? Uh, okay, so so now this is a basically many different layers, right? Yes, of, of, of physics and many layers of science that we have to cover. So you know the question is, uh, how do we, do we need to explain all of that? Or we just want to understand the fundamental forces that actually uh, led to the atoms in the first place? And even before the atoms, to the nuclei uh, inside the atom. So, the quantum world, the one that is, you actually, you and I have to use to explain the ethanol and so forth on, is right now really old stuff, right? It's about over 100, 100 years old. So, so that more or less we understand at the uh, more than less at the quantum level, and this has to do with the, the uh, quantum world when you have actually understood how electrons can be stuck to uh, the nuclei and make atoms. And then atoms are stable because of the uh, fact that uh, 
the orbits around the nuclei of the uh, electrons are quantized. So otherwise, they will actually radiate and fall on the nucleus. Right, so Bohr told us that this uh, empirically, that these uh, electrons cannot really be at arbitrary distances from the from the nuclei. They need to be at certain distances. And then when you have different atoms together, mm-hmm. the electrons like to share themselves <laughs> with the other atoms. And through this uh, sharing, which is, has to do with the electromagnetic force, they effectively are able to make bigger uh, atoms, which eventually we call molecules after a while and they make chemical bonds as a first one, but they're all based on quantum and electrodynamics, the same force that also provides the electricity. Could you explain why, what is that force that's keeping the electron from getting closer to the the proton? Ah, I mean, so if you actually just have an electron and a proton, and they they stand like that, the electron actually will fall on on the proton. The reason why it doesn't fall is because the electron, when the atom has been made, also has a little momentum in the direction orthogonal to the to the direction that will go directly to 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 the nucleus. So what actually does not allow the electron to fall is again, classically the atom would be stable. But quantum mechanics, uh, but, but because you, uh, sorry, the classical uh, would not be stable. The, uh, the electron going around will radiate and fall on the nucleus. Now, quantum mechanics prevents that to happen by saying that, again, uh, the electron can both be at the same time a wave and a particle. And now this is one of the, you know, when you say that, people go like, what, why we can do that? Wave of what? Clearly not a wave of beer, not a wave of, of, of fluid. It's a wave of probability. So we give up, when we get to the quantum world, in the explaining everything in terms of a single point-like object, but we say that we can at best provide the, the probability with which the electron is there. So with, we're going to say that we have a wave of probabilities. And if you have waves, you probably have seen that when you have waves, if you put them on a on on a, on, a, on a pond, right? They actually make nodes at the end of the pond, or makes actually uh, maximum and minimum. And when you put on 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 a sphere, like it could be around the atom, only certain frequencies are allowed. So not all of them are allowed. Therefore, this probability. A sort only certain type of uh, distances that you can have from the uh, from the nucleus, and this is actually the basics of quantum mechanics. So when you actually understand that at that level you're not allowed to describe the electron just as a point-like particle, but mm. as a wave. <clears throat> so an uh, electron behaves sometimes like a particle and sometimes like a wave. Mm. I know that that's also true for light. The, yeah. It, Behaves like a wave or, or, or a photon. Yes, yeah. So how does how does light white light interact with this yeah. glass of beer? Because um, I'm imagining there's white light coming and hitting the beer, and yes. it's it's there's only a, a beautiful golden <laughs> color coming back yes. back to me. What, what's going on then at the atomic level? So when actually the uh, light comes to uh, to to the glass, in this case to to the molecules of the of the uh, beer. It will actually uh, make the electron jump from certain uh, from their 
equilibrium state to some high excited state. What you observe is then these electrons falling back and giving back the light they have absorbed. And they only absorb the light that is actually then the color you see. So you see only the light that have been re-emitted by the electrons once they have been excited. So not all the spectrum of light is absorbed by every single molecule or every single atom, only a specific one, the one which makes them jump to, uh, if you, you can imagine pictorically, to some larger distances, then they will go back and they'll emit their particular type of uh, light. That's, you know, a larger stand gives us different frequencies mm -hmm. that you see. So so the the beer is absorbing the golden frequency and then re-emitting that golden exactly. frequency again. Exactly. And this microphone in front of me is absorbing uh, the gray and then re-emitting that again. Exactly. W yeah. What about the other wavelengths of, of light? So it, 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 they will all affect other... They will affect other uh, materials, other mm -hmm. particles, other free particles, which are not, for example, bound. So it depends exactly what you're impinging onto. I mean, it's not it's, it's a property of the material at this point. That's why you can study the materials, right? This is a, it's exactly the way we study material, materials. So we do what uh, a three-year-old three kid would do. You throw at them stuff and see how they react. Uh -huh. So the same we're doing with, uh, with light and, you know, what do we have around us. Yeah. So you actually know that, and then you can also extrapolate of course, you can uh, have different type of frequencies. You can have entire spectrum of frequencies, but some atoms only react to a certain uh, frequency. That's also the way we know what stars are made of, because they only emit lights coming from the material they're made of. Ah, because they're, they're, they're emitting yeah. light that, that tells you about the ah, stars. Exactly. We know all the elements that are in stars. We can look at the sun and see what the sun is made of by actually looking at the spectrum of light coming from the sun. So the, the spectrum of light coming from our sun in our solar system is different from a, the spectrum of light coming from a different Absolutely, star? Absolutely, yeah. Depending on what the star is made of, right? Okay. Yeah. And so what is our sun made of? Well, our star is a, it's a, it's a, a red giant, so actually it's not a very powerful one, and mm -hmm. why we burn already. Uh, and uh, actually it's... Uh, well, actually as... Each single star starts basically with, uh, like an engine, start basically burning up elements. So it starts with the hydrogen, that makes helium. So you have to think about it that you have gas, and then gas likes to collapse. Hmm? Uh, because of gravitational, mm -hmm. yeah, through gravitational uh, force. So it likes to collapse. But as it tries to collapse, at this point, the atom wins the electromagnetic repulsion and gets actually squeezed very much against each other. Think about hydrogen. Hydrogen is basically one proton, mm -hmm. one neutron, and uh, one electron. So, but when that happens, hmm? so this actually, uh, at this point, the uh, nu nuclei gets closer very ch to each other and they start fusing. They're fusing and making heavier and heavier uh, atom, in this case, helium. So, and when that happens, actually, the, uh, the fusion process uh, keeps the uh, star in equilibrium, thermodynamic equilibrium. On one side, gravity likes to push. On the other end, the uh, gravitation, uh, the, the pressure, the thermal pressure coming from burning up keeps the star from collapsing. So the fuel keeps actually burning 
more hydrogen become helium. At one point, everything's helium, and so the star collapses because there's nothing to burn anymore. Mm-hmm. But at this point, the helium starts getting close to each other. It makes another cycle, and then it starts with heavy elements like carbon, oxygen, so forth. So, so literally, we are stardust because we came from the stars that exploded. In particular, we think we come from supernovae. And and that's us, but that also refers to the carbon, the hydrogen, and the oxygen yes. in this in this molecule everything. of ethanol that's uh, giving us the buzz. Yeah, everything exactly. <laughs> everything here, from what gives you the buzz to what uh, gives you the sound, gives basically our own existence, is due to the fact that the stars have metabolized different elements and created heavier elements. You can also ask what is the uh, heaviest element a star can produce. Yes, and it's iron. That's why we know that we come. We are very uh, late in the stage of the uh, of the in universe stage, because Earth is made by has a lot of iron in it. Mm-hmm. So we came from a very uh, an explosion, presumably of a supernova type two, uh, and that actually is in, in in once they burn everything, got up to the iron, there's nothing to burn anymore. Then the star is doomed to collapse. And to actually uh, burst uh, after the collapsion, uh, co- collapse, and uh, the ele- the elements are uh, thrown out in the universe, mm. and eventually they start because force uh, gravity likes to keep things together again. They start forming planets, start forming uh, other objects, and we are actually the solar system came from. Uh, we are actually again uh, very young in a sense. We just you know late in the process of the universe. Uh, been formed, but we are actually uh, recycling so uh, yeah. old elements. So the the, he- the elements that are heavier than, than iron, then the, they were formed in the force of the explosion of the star, the supernova. There is actually there is nothing that is uh, that we can right now uh, uh, make which is uh, heavier than iron. Honestly, high heaviest element can nature can form. Yes, uh, the most absolute is the. The uh, heaviest, element, heaviest stable element that a star can form. So, so what about the, the uranium, for example? The oh, things so human made, yeah. The, the, the things that are that are uh, that have a more protons and neutrons yes. in the core. Yes. So there's lot, lots of elements. Yeah. That for are, example, cesium yeah. under thirty-two. So for some, they're actually oak and radium. I mean, they actually were all produced uh, in a very smaller amount, and uh, they actually. Uh, um, Humans have made a great deal of those. There are other elements that can be formed, right? So it's not a problem to but actually they, go beyond that. But they were formed in the supernova blast. No, no, okay, no, no, no. Right. I mean, they, they might be. In, I was the point that uh, the cycle of the stars is actually ends with iron. Yeah. So, so that's actually why we know whether if you know if you uh, discover a. A new uh, civilization, right? How do you discover it? You could also discover it. They've been, you know, making elements the stars don't make. Mm-hmm. And you'd be able to see uh, this with light because each each element has its own light signature. Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the light signature is to do with how the electrons are formed around uh, the nucleus. Yes, exactly. Of the, of the and they, and uh, you, uh, they emit in, with a light which is allowed by their own uh, by their own orbitals around the uh, around the nucleus. Yeah. So they can only move in very well specified uh, frequency from move up or down depending whether they're excited or de- de-excited. Yeah. So yeah, we have an imprint. It's like a fingerprint 
So we really have a finger between for each single star. And that also will tell us whether the stars are going away from us or coming toward us. Because once we know the fingerprint, we can see whether it's blue-shifted or red-shifted. Mm-hmm. If it's blue-shifted, the star is going away from us. If it's red-shifted, the, sca- the star is coming at us. So actually, we can even... Uh, I thought red-shifted was getting away from sorry, us. Sorry, red-shifted yeah, is yeah, away. Blue is coming and, and red, is, yeah, red is moving sorry, away. Sorry, the other way around. Red-shifted, they're actually moving away, and blue-shifted, they're coming, to, they're coming at us. Because I heard, heard about that before, described as a, the Doppler effect. If you're hearing an yes. ambulance coming, you can hear uh, a different pitch as the, the ambulance comes towards you and then moves away again. Exactly, exactly. So the pitch is higher if it comes toward you, and is actually smaller if it goes away from you. This is the pitch of light, yeah. You can also do that. So you really can... uh, That is the way we as humans have learned about the universe. So when we understood how the atoms worked, then we actually could basically use that information to uh, look at the rest of the realm around us. So so we're talking about light here, and and light, it's, it's... I would say it's okay for me to get my head around. Mm-hmm. It's because <laughs> we're talking about the, a spectrum of light here, and we can all the colors we see is yes. part of it. Just a very small part of that. At one end it goes uh, up to X rays and gamma rays, and one end it, it goes wow. down to radio waves. So it's all to do with the the wavelengths of they these. Have. Yes, of the electromagnetic spectrum. Exactly. So so light. I, th- I think I've got, <laughs> but but uh, the, the the magnetism part of it. Yeah. How does that come into... Basically, oh, uh, what I'm saying is I can't really understand magnetism. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think... I mean, electro and magnetism actually became the same force. Right? So, And again, it's to do to uh, relativity again, right? So you can have an electron, which creates an electric field around it, or you can move an electron. And that's a total creating a magnetic field. So in a way, these two uh, forces are complementary to each other. It depends also the way the things move. And uh, so electromagnetism are an expression of the same force, right? So the electric and magnetic field are actually expression of the uh, the same equations, so-called Maxwell equations. And there was breakthrough really when people started understanding that indeed they were related. They were not two different things. They were expression of the same force. Mm. So... One way to think about it is that you don't have to think really about it, about electro and magnetism, right? It's, it goes back to, because we are, have historical heritage to have experimented them differently, but actually they all come from the same force with its electromagnetism. It, it's amazing that we, we take it for granted. It's how we get power. It's how we do our, our telephones have yeah. have power. It's how we make electricity. Yes. But it, it's, as you said, it, you're not meant to understand it. It's meant to share it. It's like the, my, one of my, uh, remember, teachers at university, when I asked him what is temperature, it's like it's not something you have, it's something you share. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, it, you know, it, it is really, um, you have to think about a force as the mediator that of interactions in between uh, particles, right? And mm-hmm. that is actually what really the electromagnetism is. It's the mediator of the electromagnetic force between two uh, objects that experiment the electromagnetic force. We have also particles that, at first instance, don't experiment the electromagnetic force. They are neutral. So, but they will actually uh, eventually, through 
so-called quantum corrections fill them in any case. But I mean, at the first instance, they actually are transparent to, to light. Well, let, let's take the universe. Back. They come from stars. Yes. Which is incredible. Yes. So, and stars are made from protons, hydrogen. Yes, exactly. So where, they come where from? do they come from? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we don't know where the protons came from. The meaning of that is that if I ask the simple question, why there is something rather than nothing? Mm-hmm. The answer is, actually, we don't know. But all the fundamental forces that we have so far, if you ask them, could you explain why we have protons rather than just pure energy around us? Actually, the prediction from this, what is called the standard model is that we should have pure energy. The S universe is, I mean, you assuming the universe were democratic at the beginning and, you know, it had created the same amount of matter and antimatter, stuff and anti-stuff. And we know they exist, the anti-stuff. And you ask, uh, the, uh, you run the movie of the universe, according to the laws of physics we know now, uh, you will find out that nowadays we shouldn't exist. Which means the laws of nature we have now are wrong, or at least partially incorrect, because they can't even explain why we have protons and not an equal amount of proton and anti-proton that annihilated away into pure energy. Mm. So this is one of the big mysteries right now, right? Why there is something rather than nothing. Now, your question is where the proton come from in the first place, right? As I said, we can't, I can't tell you, and if you know the answer, don't tell me. Write a paper, okay? Uh-huh. So we don't, I cannot tell you why we have protons rather than nothing, but I can tell you what the proton is made of, which is a different answer to the question asking. Right? Mm-hmm. The proton is actually a bag full of glue. Bag full of glue. Yes. <laughs> and it's actually very accurate. <laughs> so, this, you know, you typically hear the story of the protons made by three quarks. Three quarks are bound together by a strong force. The strong force provides the glue between these uh, three quarks. Uh, and here we go, we have a proton. But if I ask you, all right, put the proton on a scale, weigh it, would that be equal to the sum of the three parts? The answer is no. You will get that uh, if the, the most of the proton mass comes from the interactions, not from the constituents, right? So from sometimes lighter, you can consider the lighter to be technically uh, irrelevant for the mass of your bananas. But as I told you, the, each single proton mass comes from the interactions that keeps the proton together. So that is a maybe one of the most famous examples where mass comes entirely from the interactions, or most of it, like 90, over 90% comes from that. And mm. that is actually um, experimenting equal to MC square in the, you know, in the m- most beautiful of the ways, right? So, so by interactions, you're not talking about us, us clinking our glasses? No, no. Yeah, that's also, that also, I mean, that's an interaction. Effectively, it has also weight, uh-huh. but it's tiny compared to the weight you have on, in the protons that makes your glass. Mm-hmm. Yes, an interaction has a mass. I mean, you can actually transform into a mass. If I raise my glass, right, mm-hmm. there is a potential energy, right? If I uh, let my hand go, you will kill me because <laughs> <laughs> the glass will fall and smash on the floor and the beer will be all over the place. There is a potential energy provided by the gravitational uh, uh, field which is around us, mm-hmm. 
and the, this will fall back. So there is potential energy, and this po- energy can be actually identified with a mass. So, so as you raise this glass higher from the table, mm. you're you're very gradually or insi- almost insignificantly insignificant. changing its mass. Yes, I mean, uh, in fact, uh, it's maybe a most famous example of that. If I ask you, uh, uh, how long does a, a neutron lives? What would be your answer? So, if I take a, if I take an atom. Mm-hmm. And we know eight atoms are stable. Now, let me take a neutron out of uh, the hydrogen atom mm-hmm. and put it on the table. How long will it last? 15 minutes. 15 so minutes. within after 15 minutes, the neutron will disintegrate itself into a proton, an electron, and a neutrino of the electron. Now, the question is, how come it doesn't in- disintegrate inside the atom? Why are you still here? I mean, yeah. we've been speaking for more than 15 minutes and I haven't seen you disintegrating away. Yeah. <laughs> so something is keeping the neutron from disintegrating itself. What is that? If, if, just a couple of questions there. So how long do, would a proton live if you were to set it Forever. Pro- forever. Okay. Or as longer, we have already measured that, uh, it lives longer than the age of the universe, which is a roughly 10 to the 32 uh, years. Wow. And and so whenever this neutron de- decays into a proton and an electron, electron and, and a, a, a neutrino, neutrino what would be the would the sum of of those masses equal to the sum of the, the neutron? So the mass of the neutron is one million electron volts heavier than the proton. The mass of the electron is half of a million of electron volts. So there is enough so called in physics phase space or available for the neutron to decay into a proton and give half of the energy to, uh, to the half of a, me- a megaelectron volt to the electron and the rest of the neutrino. Mm. So why does it not happen in the atom? When it is in the atom, then actually the, uh, there is a so-called binding energy, a potential energy that actually shifts the mass of the neutron by exactly half, a little bit more than half megaelectron volts to make it impossible for the neutron to decay in, in uh, smaller parts. And that is the potential energy that saves us from uh, collapse. The interactions. Yeah. We wouldn't be here talking were not for that. Imagine that, how sensitive the entire life is. So when people say they want to understand how life works, if you don't understand fundamental interactions, what are we talking about? Right. So if you imagine without knowing Einstein's theory of relativity, if we will not be able to understand this, the nuclear forces, the electromagnetic forces, life wouldn't exist at all. We would not be, we would not be here. Well, what's really incredible is that as a species, we've only figured this out 100 years ago. Yes, yes. It's a couple of generations yes. ago. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And we also know when to quit Earth, right? Because we also learn when the sun will go off. <laughs> so as I used to say to my students in classical mechanics, you should keep dear to you a physicist and an engineer. The physicist will tell you when to quit Earth. The engineer will make the f- spaceship. <laughs> so make sure that you have them as friends. How, how long do we have before we have to get off? Fortunately, we can be okay. I mean, maybe we'll kill ourselves long before <laughs> the, the sun does that. But eventually, we are doomed. We cannot keep the sun from collapsing. Yeah. So that to me is amazing when we kill each other. We do, you know, when when effectively we are we live on already on uh, borrowed time. <laughs> yeah. So all we should think of is how to do time travel, how to do space travel, right? 
Time travel. Sorry. L- L- space travel, let's do that. <laughs> okay. Well, let, let, let's just top up our glasses here before we move yes. on. Yes. Maybe I should need more beer. It would be great. But I'm sure you've watched Interstellar, right? So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't it be cool if you could actually go through wormholes? It would. Do wormholes exist? Not currently. To, not, not, <laughs> not according to the current theory of, uh, of um, general relativity. Wormholes are non-stable solution of, uh, of general relativity. However... If an alien coming from outer space could come, comes here tomorrow morning, right, that we know that has gone through a wormhole, we should just, you know, not shake their hands because they're incredibly smarter than us. They probably are not here to uh, make friends, but to colonize us. Yeah. <laughs> because they've been figuring out to make matter that allows a wormhole to be stable. So you would, they are going to be so much smarter than us. Yeah. But you, you, you think that their, their intentions would be... Uh, um, not friendly. Uh, this, this I learned from uh, from uh, a documentary, right? So it was pretty cool. So, do you remember any the documentary time? Independence Day? No, it's, no, no. The, document, <laughs> the documentary was about you know uh, evolution. Like, mm-hmm. do you know any species that got smarter than another one that you know made friends with uh, weaker species? That's a very good point. I yeah. don't know any of that. Yeah, we we. You, you either suggest ma- that we wiped out the uh, Neanderthals, we're wiping out every other <laughs> other the, species. So you either you either actually um, eat them, or you make them pets. So you, you know, if you're lucky, we're going to become their pets. Yeah, we we can't even be friends with each other. <laughs> no, but like, what, what makes us think that we're going to be able to be friends with a, a different planet? <laughs> yeah, we, we would be, especially of uh, low life <laughs> species, yeah. according to their point of view. Yeah. So I wouldn't. I would run for cover. <laughs> Can we bring things the whole way back? Yes. To the beginning of time. Yes. The Big Bang. Yes. Uh, so I, I know you, you mentioned earlier on about uh, the you can see if there's a redshift in the mm-hmm. stars, the stars are moving away. Right. Um, this means that the universe is expanding. Right. Uh, I'm not going to be able to tell the whole story, but that's that's one piece of evidence that we have that at one point the universe was a singularity, mm. and right. then it exploded. Yes. And then the, the quarks came, and then the protons came, yes. and then the neutrons came, the elements came, and then we came. Yes. What happened in that little bit in between? The ex- if I knew, <laughs> I wouldn't tell you. I'd write a paper. <laughs> the truth is that we don't know. Uh-huh. The truth is that our laws of physics, when get to that point, break down. So unfortunately, we have uh, an unfinished business. So um, that's why we still have our jobs, right? So, yeah. So we still have to do a lot of stuff, still to understand a lot of uh, physics there. There are speculative ideas on how this came to be. And uh, they're fun to actually entertain and to study and to see right now also what are the uh, implications on the physics around us. So there is um, there are many uh, possibilities and uh, from, you know, String theory to uh, loop quantum gravity to uh, dynamical triangulations, causal dynamical triangulations to uh, group field theory. <laughs> so this is just a short list of uh, pot- potential quantum gravity theory that should be or could be or maybe they're all wrong. <laughs> 
able to explain what happened at the beginning of all, uh, of the time. It could be that as we speak, another universe is expanding and uh, you know it's actually colliding with our universe, right? Mm. So all of this we actually have no idea. In fact, there is a logical possibility that has that many universes have been bubbling up all the time. And we leave only one of those. And the laws of physics in our universe are different from the laws of physics in another universe. Right? So this is actually, we might imagine that there is infinite sea of energy and, and bubbling universes are coming everywhere up. And we just in one of those with that specific laws of nature. Is that theory only in mind or is there any no, no, mathematical you evidence you know, to no, Mathematical evidence is, uh, uh, I mean, there are... Physical evidences and then there's there physical evidences. No, 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 no. I didn't say there are physical okay. evidences for that. I say that for evidences, I mean experiments. Okay. So mathematics can actually be uh, can be deceivingly beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> in other words, we can have amazing mathematics where things are consistent but are not realized in nature. I mean, classical mechanics was amazing, but it didn't work. We needed quantum mechanics, right? Hmm. So internal consistency alone is not uh, sufficient to make it a law of nature. So, um, I will say that uh, there are many ideas on how the universe came to be. Uh, many are maybe more compelling than others, but uh, it's hard to say which one of these is actually the correct one. So, for example, right now I'm with uh, a number of uh, very, very bright young students, we're actually having a lot of fun exploring uh, different theories of quantum gravity comparing against each other and trying to see what actually they tell about the tears we see at low energy, which means uh, um, like uh, the theories of the standard model, how can you patch them together, right? In string theory, this started as a name as Swampland scenario. <laughs> the what scenario? Swampland swamp scenario. scenario, okay. So the idea is that, okay, so we don't know, we, we, leave, we leave in, in, in the... In the universe with a standard model, which is uh, we have four forces, but we know we need to uh, improve on the standard model because we can't even explain, for example, why we exist. So, so we, I, th I think we just talked about uh, the four forces: so electromagnetism, weak force, strong force, force and gravity, and, and gravity, and gravity. Yes, uh, but when you want to put them together in yeah. a quantum theory, right? Uh, then we can actually tr uh, see whether we can patch them together. There's this romantic idea that uh, there's only one single force and everything come out of that. So string theory is one of these romantic ideas where from a single uh, force, everything else comes to be, including gravity. Mm. So, so, so a single force regarding, say, what, what temperature? No, or? a single force means really a, a, a very basic concept mm -hmm. from which everything comes out. For example, if I say that the elementary constituent is not a point but a string, then from the different vibration of the string, I can get all the particles I want, including gravity. Is that clearly a beautiful romantic idea, right? So, because I mean, I'm unifying all the particles you've seen in one fundamental object called a string. Now, the string can do many things, right? The string has also, I'm not defending string theory, it should be very clear, but as used to say, the only way to criticize something is to know it. Mm -hmm. So string theory is one of the ways where consistently you can patch up different forces. 
and you can actually write a consistent theory of quantum gravity. Albertin also predicts extra dimensions, right? So now you can say that's a bad thing because we've only seen four dimensions, or this is a great thing. We are about to discover extra dimensions. Depends how you spin it. <laughs> so personally, I'm interested in understanding. So a coherent mathematical theory of uh, space-time that also is able to describe the ordinary forces is, at the very least, a very nice toy model to explore. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's even the theory of everything. Who knows? A, a theory of everything, that, that's, that's the, the goal. That's the goal. Yeah, that's the, that, that's the dream. Yeah. Okay? That's the romantic dream behind everything. That I wish I can see God in, in his eyes, right? And say, okay, fine, I understand what you did, right? Mm. I, I'm not a believer, but certainly the romantic idea of a unique theory of everything from which everything that comes out is appealing. Mm -hmm. So a, a theory of everything... So, so that would uh, be able to describe uh, classical physics, like um, Newton's laws, and then combining that with quantum theory, that would also describe how, what was the mechanism that, that set the Big Bang off? Yes, uh -huh. it would actually, in principle, be able to, uh, uh, not only to tell how the Big Bang came to be, but whether we had only one whether others, yeah. whether we actually have different universes. So we might be limited by our instruments, right? Mm. You know, unfortunately, uh, even Democritus, when he thought about the atoms, it took, you know, thousand years before we saw them. So you can be infinitely smart, but unfortunately, if the instruments are not there to be able to see it, it does not really, uh, we cannot validate the theory. I'm gonna gonna get a bit more philosophical now. Yeah, so sure. so let let's say we have this theory for for everything, yes. uh, to, 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 and a, and a good theory is able to predict mm. what's going to happen. So then yes. we we would be able to predict, say what the the evolution of the universe up until now, and then where it's going to go, yes. which would then imply that things that happen within the universe is predetermined. Um. Well, okay. So let me put it this way, you um depending on what kind of universe we have, right? Yeah. Because we're going to have different type of universes. So I don't think you can predict what happens, but you can uh, say what is the gross story of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, with a certain probability, say what's going to happen. Well, well, even whenever it comes to placing an electron, we can't say exactly where it's going to be. It's, there's going to be a probability. Right, right. Like there's, there's a probability that I'm going to take a drink yes. of beer right now. Is that, is that. <laughs> at a classical level, <laughs> we can be very precise about that, right? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, at, at the macroscopic level, it's a bit easier to actually say. For example, right now, the universe will expand forever. I mean, according to our laws, the universe actually, uh, and our measurements... <laughs> Right, there is a, a continuous expansion. The universe will become very cold, and everything will die out because unless, uh, unless you know, we hit another universe, <laughs> yeah, that's also expanding at the same time, and uh, it will actually enter in our uh, uh, in collision with our universe. Mm -hmm. and you will have another bang. So, and the oh, laws oh, of nature if, will if change. You, if, if, if there were multiple universes and they collide, they wouldn't just merge together. It would be explosive. Depends. I mean, for example, yeah. the people have been studying that in string theory. Again, string theory is, think of it as a toy model for playing different things. People have worked in uh, the possibility of different universes and colliding each other. And um, the way to think about it is that 
um, our universe, right, there's three space and one dimension. Sorry, with three space and one time. Mm. Three space dimension and one time. So you can see that, you can think of it as uh, a membrane hmm, that actually, uh, imagine that you, uh, this window behind you, right? This window is a two-dimensional membrane, mm-hmm. and then there is time. But we live in three dimensions, right? So you can actually see the membrane. And the mem- beings living in that membrane only see the membrane, but nothing else, right? So now you could have another membrane, which is another universe, you know, that is actually impacting on you. So that would be actually uh, an impact. So people have thought, what if at the beginning of the universe, was, rather than being an explosion, was actually banging two membranes? Then they will actually provide uh, the sound of the gravitational waves coming from there will be different from the sound of the gravitational wave. By sound, this metaphorical sound. Or the gravitational wave coming from a, an explosion. And so people are searching for this cosmological uh, imprints of whether or not our bang was from two membranes colliding or actually an explosion, because that would be different. Uh-huh. And so now you can see that how, um, admittedly, more speculative ideas can actually turn into uh, experimental uh, tests of this yeah. idea. So either our universe slowly cools and expands yes. into a very boring death, Yes. Or or it can collide with, or with something another, else. Yeah. Or I mean, just something yes. else. Yeah. I will still pay my mortgage, just make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't count on that happening tomorrow morning. So, yeah. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong impression. So, please pay your mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> you you worked at CERN, Francesco. Yes. Yeah. And I will go there next year, too, again. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, what's the plans next year? Uh, to have fun with physics, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. I think that's... Uh, it's hard to predict what one is will be working on, but I can definitely say what I'm working now. So from experiments point of view, we have exciting results that they came a few weeks after each other. One from CERN, a larger, uh, in particular the experiment called LHCB, Large Hadron Collider Beauty, uh-huh. B stands for beauty, uh, where they were searching for certain processes, uh, rare processes, and these processes uh, seem to um, disagree with the standard model, uh, at least uh, at three sigma. And they've been actually uh, repeating this experiment for three, four, five years and consistently disagreeing with the standard model. The technical name of that is violation of lepton universality, which is a very fancy name uh-huh. to say that muon, the, the muon behaves differently from the electron. And according to the standard model, uh, the energy of which they do the experiments, the standard model predicts that the muon and the electron should behave in the same way. But they calculated this, uh, a certain case from beauty mesons, mesons made of uh, with a quark beauty. A quark uh, called beauty? quark called beauty. And that uh, beauty will decay into a strange, <laughs> into, uh, a strange quark, an object made of strange quarks, and then two muons. But it will also decay in two electrons. And you do the ratio of these two, and in the standard model, this ratio should be one, right? With a very large precision. And it turns out to be actually uh, not one, but 0.8 with some error. And this error allows you to say that according to the, uh, according to the experiments, they are uh, 97, 98% away from the standard model. Mm-hmm. We still have to wait for other experiments to test that. Uh, two weeks later, Fermilab measures the uh, uh, magnetic moment of the muon. This came also on all news, right? Now, the magnetic moment of the muon, you can think of it as a muon also having a little magnet inside. 
So what you do, you put in a magnetic field that makes it process. And you can measure the frequency of precession. Right? And then you can compare it to the predictions in the standard model. Now, this is a little bit more uh, delicate than the, what I told you was seen at the Large Hadron Collider. Mm. The Large Hadron Collider, the, uh, there is no uh, potential uh, theoretical problem with that. With this one, there are some corrections that are not as precise to be calculated in the standard model as in the case of the uh, Large Hadron Collider. Nevertheless, again, the muon uh, magnetic moment turns out to be different than what you predict in the standard model. Now, it's tantalizing to think that something's there. New forces might actually be there that account for the difference from the muon and the electron. These new forces. Now, if you, you know, allow me to speculate, right? Mm -hmm. I don't like when something predicts, I mean, postdicts something, right? It's always nice when at the same time also they solve other problems. So we already know that the standard model fails to explain why we are here in the first place. We also know that the standard model fails to explain dark matter. So maybe these forces are able to now not only uh, account for that, but also to actually take into account of these other explanations that were, uh, in any case, uh, impossible to be uh, derived from the standard model. So maybe we're seeing the first cracks in the standard model. And mm -hmm. maybe in, if that's true, and it, take a, it will take probably a year or two before this will be consolidated, then in a year and two, year, two years from now, we will all be doing that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and so the, we mentioned the, the forces of the standard model, and but the standard model also contains uh, a list of, of particles like the quarks and uh, the, the leptons right. and the gluons that uh, yes. that um, that make up reality. Yes, it's the best we we have to describe. Yeah, reality. Yeah, I, I think it's not very satisfactory. I mean, if you ask me, I think that's disgusting. I mean, <laughs> I, I, mean it's, it's, I don't like to have three copies of the same particle. Like you have electron, muon, and tau. They actually have all the same chemical properties. Mm. They actually differ in mass. So what they call the families, right? Mm. So, I mean, uh, families typically uh, can be very good, but too tight, they're going to hurt you, right? So the same is with the families. We don't know why they're three families, and why there should be three and not five and not six and not seven, right? So we don't really have a good explanation for that. So uh, as somebody said, I mean, uh, we have the electron who ordered the muon, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the question is where all this come from? Why do we have four forces? Why do we have uh, three families of uh, particles, both in terms of the quarks and the electrons, muon, tau, and neutrinos? Um, this actually, I think, that the standard model, you know, you put in by hand. You don't understand it. Mm -hmm. you, do, you use them. An example, we can go back to chemistry, right? Before we understood how to make the atoms, Mendeleev came with a table of elements. At that time, it was a fantastic discovery. It was the fundamental mm -hmm. <laughs> table of, uh, you know, of particles, right? There were the atoms. And at the time, okay, this is what the universe is made of. The universe is going to be made of. And then we realized, ah, wait a second. I mean, but actually there is a much simpler explanation. There are protons, neutrons, electrons, and with these three, I can make all the atoms. Mm -hmm. That's a fantastic discovery. And we thought, ah, we'd made it. Protons <laughs> and neutrons are the elementary objects together with the electrons, and then all the atoms, bang, are done. Mm -hmm. And now we say... No, wait a second. Even the proton neutrons are made of something else. And they actually now we find out that they're even more than just the things that mix the proton and neutron. Of course, the table we have now is much, much smaller than the Mendeleev table. Mm -hmm. 
But I think it's still too large according to my taste. So, so of of the particles that are in that standard yeah. bottle, which of them are in this glass of beer? Only the up, down, and electric. So the quarks only? Yes. No, they're up, down, up. Uh, and electric. Yeah. Up, down, and electric. Okay. Only two type of quarks, the up and down. And uh, three up, up, and down. And okay, electric. so there's only yeah. three there. Yes. Right. And of course, there are also the gluons that keep the protons together. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there is the photon that you know, the the kips actually the that basically allows you to have the atoms. This is the obvious ones, right? The ones they are there. So this is actually that's why I say who ordered the mutant, right? So we're we're zooming in as close as we can get, and this is as close as we can get. Yes. But what what about the, that space then in between the stuff? Like the, the space between electrons, yeah. the space between all the particles you're you're talking about is that, is that is that is that really is that really empty space if we a space it, medium is even the two yeah yeah, uh, yeah the space between oh, the space is never empty right so what 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 is there uh, oh i mean it's uh, the space is never empty so basically what we say is that uh and this goes back to quantum mechanics again right mm-hmm. so if you ask if you ask what this, the space is made of right mm-hmm. so if at one point in the in this space, we have an electron and a positron forming. As long as they leave for a time, you can't measure it. They're going to be there. <laughs> so the thing is that, as we speak, I mean, an electron-positron pair, like any other virtual pair, which is officially light enough, will form and close. So the, the what we call the vacuum, it's not really vacuum. It's actually made by virtual pair of quantum mechanical objects. So what, what we think is empty space, yeah. these uh, small particles, electrons, and it's it's anti particle yes. the, the yes. positron they, pop up and, and they, they spring into existence and they die again and they but, spring out of existence right exactly but for a time for which you can you know and, and there's an uncertainty the time they leave and the energy they can actually have they uh, they have they're correlated so uh, we won't be able to make them but the black hole can make it and that is why the black hole actually has a temperature. Okay, so let, let, before we get into black uh, holes, we have to get into something that, as yes. well that uh, that makes inherent sense to me, but I don't understand yeah. it. Gravity. Yes. <laughs> so you mentioned at the start start of this about how the the interactions mm-hmm. with the gluons and the, and the up and down mm-hmm. gives the proton it, its mass yes. with with Einstein's theory of relativity. Yes. Uh, so we have its mass, mm-hmm. but mass is different from gravity. No, mass is always uh, part of gravity. So, okay. So, yeah, it, it, gravity is sensitive to mass. <laughs> so, gravity attracts is different. Ref- I mean, if you write down the equation for the Newtonian gravity and the equation for uh, the electromagnetic force, you see that they're actually identical at the classical level. The only difference that we say is that the would-be charge in uh, gravity is the mass. So two objects with equal mass, with, with uh, two different masses, will always attract each other. There is no negative mass and negative mass or positive mass and positive mass. There is only one type of mass, and they always attract each other. For uh, the electromagnetic force, even though the force is exactly the same expression on the classical level, we can say two protons don't like each other. They repel each other. Mm. But the proton and electron, which have opposite charge, they like each other and they try to attract each other. Gravity, on the other hand, is very, you know, uh, likes everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there is, uh, you know, it basically, they always attract each other. And this is just a fact of nature. I mean, so it's not something that, you know, uh, springs out of uh, equations, why we do that. But it is actually a fact. But then, you know, uh, 
our friend uh, Albert. Mm-hmm. He actually, <laughs> yes. uh, little Albert, decided. I mean, this is a, a gravity is more like an expression of space time itself. Gravity bends space time. So rather than thinking of, of actually um, a, a abstract force, think about the space itself, you know, being uh, changing with the, if you have mass. So mass modifies the space around you. So like on this sofa and this couch, I mean, your laptop there is modifying the the surface there. So if you put a ball around that your laptop, it likes to get close to the, to the laptop. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you interpret gravity as a modification of space-time itself. And that is, if you want, the closest kind of understanding you can get to gravity, where gravity and the mass deform the space around it, and therefore it makes objects fall into each other gravity. Literally, mm-hmm. like where you were sitting on a sofa, mm-hmm. and you have two you know, balls on a sofa, and then eventually the two heavy objects will attract each other and try to get to the same place. So, the the mass interacts with the the fabric of the universe, space yes, and time. Exactly. Um, but I, I am reminded about uh, another CERN discovery of the Higgs boson. Yes. And uh, I didn't quite get that, but but this this is another particle that creates an, a field, a force. Yeah, in, so in, in which mass things with mass interact. Yeah. Now, now the question is that you're asking is a slightly different one. Where the you know, uh, where the um, elementary particle gets their mass uh-huh. from. So we already say that even objects which don't have a mass through interactions can actually generate mass. This one way to get a mass. Uh-huh. And this is actually, again, through interactions. So now you're already primed to understand that other interactions can also give a mass. Right? So in the case of the glue, is the interaction of the gluons itself. You don't need a Higgs to give a mass of a proton. That's the beauty of that. So we have a generation of a mass of a proton that comes from pure interactions among massless constituents. Mm. And that's mind-blowing, right? Now I'll tell you something else. Now there's another possibility where the mass is generated through the interactions with another state, in this case the Higgs. So now, you know, imagine that... uh, this is the Hall of Fame analogy, right? This is something that uh, when physicists was, were asked by the, you know, by the British Ministry, right? Can you explain to us, to human beings, how the Higgs works? And they came up with this explanation. Mm. I don't subscribe it as the most beautiful explanation, but it is an explanation, right? It's an analogy. And yeah. it's an analogy is just an analogy. So imagine that you, you know, Michael... You're very famous for science of beer. Everybody loves you. You can get to a room, right? And you work out every day, and you're very thin, and you're you know, extremely energetic. It's good this is a podcast. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're not seeing Michael, but I promise you it's like exactly the way I'm describing it. So, of course, I take I take a little, uh, you know, a beer for free after this. So, but then he enters into the door, and everybody knows him, and uh, people want to get this autograph. In this universe, which we now call a room, right, because of uh, its interactions with uh, the rest of uh, the people around him, which now you can think of it as the Higgs field, uh, he will slow down. You cannot go fast, right? Now, the star acquires momentum, and by that it will actually effectively acquire a mass because the clump of people around you will actually slow you down. 
On the other mm. hand, if a tax collector comes in, everybody tries to avoid this person because tax collectors are not, you know, prime to be loved. <laughs> this person will have a lesser mass because it will go more, uh, uh, will go through the uh, universe uh, unnoticed. Okay, mm. so the Higgs seems also to have a preference to certain particles. It interacts more, yeah. and with other particles, interacts less. The standard model does not tell you yeah. why that's the case. That, that's unfair on the electrons and the photons by calling them tax collectors. Right, 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 right. The, the photon is yeah. your tax collector, yeah. I mean, effectively. The electron is a quasi-tax collector, and the top is the uh, Michael of the situation. It's the object <laughs> that gets the heaviest mass of all. That, that's, a, that's a nice analogy for describing the... Yes. I wish I had invented it. But... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, I got, I'm getting fat a beer. They got a bottle of champagne. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> so. Almost the same. So, so okay. So, so we have we have gravity now, but uh, I'm I'm really fascinated by by black holes that because because gravity it, it's it's described as a a, a weak force. You know, yes. it takes something the size of our globe to yes. to have a a, a reaction to yeah. be able to yes. hold my beer in my glass. But a black hole is has so much gravity yes. that uh, light can't escape. Yeah. So so uh, what what I, I I can understand it that if you get a really massive object, it just it sucks everything in. I'm picturing something that's actually actually massive, but it's it's mm-hmm. it's so compact, it's a singularity. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we don't know what is inside the black hole. So, mm. I mean, again, uh, for the same reason why we can't tell, uh, run the history of the universe exactly at the very beginning, but there is a singularity. At the same time, we cannot, the, the, all the laws of physics, uh, or we don't have a theory of quantum gravity, so we can't really get to the, uh, to, to the, to the interior, mm. interior of the black hole and get basically uh, the, where, if and where there is a singularity. Mm. What we can say, however, is that Black hole forms, we know they exist, we have seen it, I mean, effectively. And the question is, first of all, how do you see a black hole in the first place? Because it's a black and it's a hole. But we can feel their gravity. Now, um, black holes are solutions. Now, if you just, as I used to say to the, when I teach physics, there are two modalities. One is actually, you know, being guided by your intuition and the mathematics. The other is what you call the blind mode. You just trust your equations, right? Mm-hmm. So let's go blind mode. So you take the gravity equation and ask what are all possible solutions, right? What kind of, kind of space-time you can have? And gravity says, see, we can have this type of, of space-time that as exactly this behavior will bend the light around so that light doesn't skip. And now you can say nonsense or say, well, let me look and see if this is there. So black hole came out like that. I mean, they were predicted from the theory of gravity and said, these are solutions of Einstein gravity. So we can better see if they are stable, which means classically they don't go away. Mm. So they should be there. And that's the way people start. Uh, and then, of course, the first question to say, yes, but how you see a black hole given that, you know, it's uh, it's it's really not something that easy to spot, right? Well, see, but on the other hand, it will uh, act to... to far away from the black hole, very much like a star. Mm. Well, I just pull things together. And people in, you know, planets, planetary systems or other black holes or other objects will go around it. So we could see them from their gravitational pull. So that's the way we saw it. Mm. 
And then it came up Hawking, right? They made Hawking famous. Mm-hmm. Say, look, but so far we're discussing classical black hole, right? So what if we marry gravity with quantum mechanics? I'm not quantizing gravity. Uh-huh. That's a subtle thing. That's why I can discuss it, right? Yeah. Because if I were really to marry quantum and gravity, I should have a theory of quantum gravity. I won't be describing what happened in the internal of a black hole, but I'm going to describe what comes around the black hole. Yep. And that's where I can use both theories well, well enough to say something intelligent about it. Right. Give it to me. And like, <laughs> So how it works. Like, so uh, Hawking goes like, oh, right, fine. According to quantum mechanics, as I told you before, even in empty space, at one point, an electron and a positron will form, and then they will annihilate away again. They, I won't be able to you know, see them because they will leave for a short amount of time, so short that I can measure it. But now let's assume that I'm close to a black hole, and an electron and a positron uh, pair forms. But I'm very close to the horizon of black hole, right? So that uh, one of the two particles is actually now going to be eaten up by the black hole. Now, by conservation of the energy, the momentum, the other one has to go away. At this point, from any observer outside the black hole, they will see an object that radiates. So the object actually now is not black anymore. It's gray. It's a radiating energy. It actually, and what energy? Its own mass radiates away. So a black hole actually is not a stable object. It mm. will actually radiate away energy. So th- this particle that just sprang into existence yes. with its it, its, yeah. its antiparticle uh, didn't exist. Uh, so uh, now it, it lives, this particle stays, it doesn't get annihilated. It no, not anymore. Goes in, We're gonna, it goes out into right, the universe. Right, right. So, and it will endow the black hole effectively with the temperature, which is called the Einstein temperature. Sorry, the Hawking temperature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is actually the Hawking, uh, one of the major discoveries by Hawking was actually to marry quantum mechanics and general relativity. He did not quantize gravity, but he did actually say what are the implications of having quantum mechanics married to a black hole mm-hmm. and became the famous Hawking radiation. And uh, have we been able to see this? No, because the radiation is too tiny yet to see it. Yeah. But you can see the stuff that the black hole eats. So the recent images of a black hole were actually uh, what the if you have two uh, a star and a black hole the the star will be eventually uh, material from the star ends up on the black hole and we see actually mm. the image of that. What about time in a black hole? Is time eaten? Is, does time exist? In a well, black time. Hole? I mean, again, uh, as we were saying before, think about having uh, that matter deforms space time. If matter deforms space-time, it deforms both space and time, right? So uh, time, uh, if you were getting closer to black hole, right, uh, your time seen from an observer outside actually gets lower. And in fact, in interstellar, when they get closer to the black hole and they go back home in the, in the mothership, mm-hmm. the people in the mothership were older than the people that uh, were on the star close to black hole. So yeah. what happens is actually slows the time compared to observer outside. In, in, unfortunately, you will still leave in your reference frame. Mm-hmm. You still uh, don't you don't feel that, but compared to an observer outside, your age slower than that. If we were to time travel, yeah. we would go close but not too close to a black hole mm-hmm. and experience a, a, a bending of our own space time, and then we could come back to Earth and we would be younger. 
than yes than this is, people that yes we were the, our same age yes, when, yes, before we left. Yeah, so that's yes. way we I wouldn't can... count on that. But yes, no. <laughs> in, in terms of uh, doing the space travel anytime soon, but yes, that would be pretty cool. Right? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I used to say to to my own kids that you know they love, of course, Harry Potter and so forth. So on, that actually, what you that the physics uh, we know leads you to worlds which are much, much more weird than Harry Potter. <laughs> yeah, and actually, that's actually unfortunate that we don't really uh, uh, kind of make this more fun to actually explore, right? Yeah, well, reality it is it is quite strange that we can sit here and, and contemplate these these things. As you know, we we're drinking this yes. beer that's made from plants that grows from our sun, where life yes. comes from. We're able to we're able to drink it. We're able to contemplate the yes. the physics that's happening in there. We're able to try to to describe the universe. So consciousness is a strange thing. Mm. Well, I don't know where it comes from. <laughs> yeah. I wish I could define it. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, isn't that one of the ten questions of this uh, of the next always of the next century? Yeah. So, I I don't know. I mean, uh, it is a fact that we are beings that reflect upon the universe, right? Mm-hmm. So, as you were saying, if you were, uh, you know, it's it's amazing that we can do that. Mm-hmm. Given that, if you, you know, were to uh, squeeze the entire history of the universe. In a year, we will not been uh, walking this. Uh, we will not been walking this earth uh, for longer than a second. <laughs> yeah. So, and yet we're uh, trying to uh, now discuss the entire evolution of the universe. Right? It's kind of insane. Yeah. It's 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 quite quite hard to get your head around. Yes. But the moment you do, then you uh, have control over it. Yeah. Well, that's cool. It's very cool. So. Francesco, how did you get into this? How did you get into physics, physics? and, and what, oh, what inspired yeah, you? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, cartoons, yeah, cartoons. <laughs> okay. Yes, 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 it's true, yeah. You know, in Italy, and anyone hearing this podcast from Italy in the 80s will remember that, we were watching uh, uh, what now are called in a fancy way anime, Japanese cartoons. Mm-hmm. When I was a kid, were just called Japanese cartoons. Yeah. And there was one cartoon called Goldrick, right? And uh, it was this cool uh, man come to her to save Earth from aliens, right? But uh, the thing is that uh, the uh, the soundtrack at the beginning, which was in Italian, not in Japanese, I wouldn't have been able to mm-hmm. understand a word otherwise, uh, were actually singing that this this cool guy would actually eat. Uh, Salad of cybernetics and uh, sorry, salad of mathematics and read books of cybernetics and you know knows about photons, physics, mm. and so forth. So on. I need to know this. <laughs> so I actually was very much primed at that point. That I thought it was cool to do this stuff. I learned later that it wasn't exactly yeah. <laughs> according to the cartoons. But it, it, it's funny what influences you in your early life. <laughs> yes, you know, yes, it's a yes, car- cartoon that, uh, yes. that, that, that lit that spark. Yes. And I think it's exciting. Can I talk about your glasses? Oh, yeah, absolutely. There we go. But, I mean, if you think about it, there are many more uh, things you can do in life which just, uh, you know, which I don't think as exciting from my point of view. I mean, I respect everybody, but the idea that uh, I can really enjoy understanding things is amazing. It's also selfish, to be fair. I mean, I... Uh, I think 
I don't do this because I want to save humanity. I do this because I love it. Well, it's also great that there are people like you out there that are looking into these fundamental questions about what are we doing here? How did we get here? <laughs> yes, I think it's a very important question to ask. Uh, so one of the things you did yes. in your career was to establish the Danish Institute for Advanced Studies yes. that I'm doing this season of the podcast with. Yes. I, I know it's it's a an right. interdisciplinary yes. uh, institute. So you have people from, from different areas. You have people from the humanities and business and social science and the engineers and the biologists and the physicists all coming together. Uh, and my understanding is the idea is to see, see what, what happens whenever you put these different minds together. Right. So so can you tell me about the initial idea? Where did that come from? Right. So this was in uh, 2009. Mm-hmm. And then I'd uh, moved here in the end of 2007. And uh, by 2009, I was... Uh, blessed enough to receive fundings for opening up uh, my Center for Theoretical Physics and Cosmology. CP3 origins? CP3, right, and, uh, which stands for <laughs> Center for Cosmology, Particle Physics, Phenomenology. And uh, and then the dean at the time, and the writer asked me, that's great, that's the first time since the NIST board we have another institute for theoretical physics, that's amazing. Um, but for just how can we scale this up to you know something exciting for the entire university? We would like to you know um, be strong at the international level. So we needed to create something that it was first of all not just uns, but it was Danish. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it actually uh, drew from the expertise from uh, a number of uh, researchers. Where it should be very clear, I don't. I never actually uh, think that it's important to... Uh, interdisciplinarity is not something that you have to force. It's some things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that can happen when you have people around you which come from different backgrounds to whom you talk to and you bump into. Uh, so great places are actually places where you can bump into. Uh, well, I, I'm a big believer in that. You know, science and beers, is, it's not yeah. just for fun. It's, it's, uh, it's beers kind of symbolize... Talking to people, and that's yes, that's where ideas exactly, come from. Exactly. Mi- mixing, right? And I, actually, that is the the the, the way I, I was envisioning the Danish IS, and I think I will, I hope that people involved in that now will keep through to that kind of uh, mission. The mission of the is to leave free the researchers to do what they're best at and mm-hmm. to have fun with that. We don't do research for the money; we do it because it's fun. Mm-hmm. So, if it's a place where fun is the uh, the name of uh, the game, mm. then you were going to get outstanding research coming out. I would say that's very, very important. If you remove the fun from the equation, I don't think that actually is more relevant. I, I think creative freedom is an important outlet no matter where you are. If you're a, a musician, yes. a, an artist, or, or a scientist, yes. you need that creative freedom to get the ideas. Yes. I think that is where I really hope that uh, the Danish Institute of Advanced Study will keep actually uh, pushing on, is let people free to uh, explore the research, even if it's unsuccessful. I mean, uh, you know, we often remember the s- success stories, but they all built on a number of failures. Multiple and, uh, failures. Multiple yeah. fla- failures. Einstein failed. Uh, Bohr failed many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, of course, don't stress that, but maybe we should stress it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. All the failed uh, uh, T 
theories of nature that yeah. we had. There are tons of them, and thank God that we have them. And, and share your failures so and that people can failures. learn from them. I mean, you you won't be able to make. I mean, it, that's true not only in science, but in any in any endeavor where you want kind of create something, you have to try to fail, fail. Continue fail, but fail better. <laughs> fail better. <laughs> yeah, fail better. That's very important. I mean, in other words, you have to learn from your mistakes. And actually, we all, we know that there's only one theory of nature, so we are doomed. There is not. I mean, whatever theory we're working on right now can't be the right one, <laughs> just because only one is right, uh-huh. right? So, but on the other hand, that actually shapes the real theory of nature for the future. Mm-hmm. That is very important. So the Densha has, in a similar manner. It's a place where you would like to actually uh, let people free to explore what they had to do mm-hmm. and uh, have fun with that. I think that's a very important thing. I just want to touch on one sure. last thing before sure. before we wrap up because I know you you have been doing a little bit of interdisciplinary work yourself uh, this past year. You yes. know, you're you're a, a theoretical physicist looking yes. at the fundamental building blocks of the universe, yes. but you get sidetracked into the pandemic yes. <laughs> last year, and you were making some some models for how COVID nineteen yes. was yes. spreading. Yes. Yes. Well, actually, for uh, for overall infectious disease, uh-huh. and this is actually um, again born out of curiosity, and it's a fun fact of curiosity, and was born at the Danish IS. There you uh, go. Uh, yeah. uh, that happened because um, February 2020, we get an email from uh, our insulin leaders saying that, you know, you have to postpone all your travel. I was scheduled to speak at MIT. I had to spend several um, months, at least two months, a year, and um, postponed by how by long? <laughs> So when I ask, mm-hmm. okay, a month, two months, three months, like we have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so with a colleague of mine, I said, look, maybe we can try to figure it out. You know, after all, it cannot be that complicated, right? And so we, with Michele della Morte, we said, okay, you know what, Michele, let's look at what's happening in China and in Italy and see if we can get something out of that. And then in doing that, in the process of uh, trying to unravel the data for fun, for curiosity, for personal, you know, uh, understanding when we can travel again. First of all, it became very clear to us we wouldn't be traveling for years, <laughs> at least another year for sure. Uh-huh. And so that was like, okay, that's not a question of postponing, that's a question of canceling. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> that's a different, there's a subtlety there. <laughs> Second thing is that um, we started figuring out, and I started figuring out that the equations that we needed to use to... Uh, uh, describe what are known as logistic functions for uh, the epidemiological curves, which are really the infection disease curve, were actually uh, surprisingly close to uh, a type of uh, equations we were using to even describe the Higgs. And so at this point, it came interesting for me to understand the beauty behind the pandemics. Now, I know it's a sensitive issue because, you know, pandemics, uh, people die of it, so I'm very sensitive about that. But, you know, forgive a poor theoretical physicist that loves beauty in nature, and <laughs> that is nature too. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's not the virus' fault we die. I mean, it's just the way it is. But the uh, equations beneath the diffusion process were actually uh, abiding uh, symmetries related to time dilation so and that actually allowed us to effectively uh, if efficiently encode the uh, 
diffusion process of the pandemics in extremely simple equations that then allowed us to actually model the entire pandemics across different regions of the world. And in uh, after a few papers that we were able to publish, actually very well accepted by the epidemiologists, we came actually to uh, predict the second wave pandemics and how they would evolve, which nature research thought it was very important. So they upgraded to uh, international news and became actually very well known. And we got so excited about that mm -hmm. that now we're actually even using machine learning and artificial intelligence to actually understand how the not only the pandemics works, but how we can put these principles together to uh, have a theory of uh, variants of viruses and how they work. So basically evolutionary uh, genetics, evolutionary uh, infectious disease. Oh, you're a biologist. Was, yeah. <laughs> am I a biologist? Okay, okay. <laughs> I would say that I am uh, a, a kind of a, a poor physicist trying to uh, understand some basic stuff, but it's true. We're actually trying to um, try to understand stuff that you guys know, I'm sure, better than we do. That's really, really cool. Well, it, 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 it's very it's very impressive that you're you're um, you're able to, to model this. Uh, was it received by policymakers? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. It's also policymakers, actually. So I would say a little bit too late because okay. we were a bit. Um, you also have to understand. I mean, it's not easy for policymakers because at one point it's not only uh, science, but also there is politics and there is how the people receive things. Um, I can say that uh, if our results in August 2020 would actually have been taken more seriously, not by the by the by the scientists, by actually the um, politicians, mm -hmm. uh, we have our colleagues also from France, then most likely, uh, if they would have acted upon in August, they actually the uh, disaster that happened in France and and the from September to December and also in Italy eventually and many other European countries mm -hmm. actually could have actually been mitigated more. So mm -hmm. so this is uh, we knew this was coming and we also knew the impact of that. And yeah. That is we had to run even a movie for it. So I, 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 I watched that movie yeah. and I actually I, I planned my trips back yeah. home to Ireland from Denmark to Ireland based based on on your prediction. Right, and I managed to get back home just before it kicked yes, off. Exactly, and, and imagine <laughs> if the if the if politician would have used that more uh, precisely. Now we actually want to since this diffusion diffusion processes are not just uh, realm of epidemiology, but are more general. My hope is that we can extend this analysis not only for uh, infectious disease but also for um, social sciences mm -hmm. because there are many things that can be related to similar diffusion processes. And, uh, and I would say that the, uh, it's important for me that the, the, we understand that both at the microscopic level with the microscopic uh, uh, models which the technical name of those are called percolation models. Mm. And at the more macroscopic level, with this effective description that we dubbed the epidemiological normalization group. But I truly believe that this actually can be extended beyond uh, epidemiology. And it's something where it's some of the next goal. And now, again, we're also, however, putting together with uh, machine learning and we're going to have... Uh, Trying to have a a theory of uh, variants that uh, mm. doesn't exist very much, and the reason of that is that we have to understand COVID is the first time where 
um, we have so much data, also in terms of sequencing. So we're actually looking at the sequences and so forth. And so on. Um, that as the first time that a virus has ever been studied in such a detail, mm. both from the epidemiological point of view, from a biological point of view, and from actually massive data point of view. We even used the Google and Apple data for uh, for um, uh, study the movement of people in Europe and in the States. So, so if there was a lockdown, were were people really? Yes, we could stay tell. home or? Right, right. For example, we can say that in Denmark, people were not staying home. <laughs> okay. When it came the lockdown, uh, you could see that people were all in the parks. Uh-huh. So yeah. the the actual mobility constraint, which were mo- maximally felt in Europe, were in uh, in Spain and Italy, where people were really staying at home. Mm. So in Denmark, actually, you can see that, yes, people were not going to work, but they were mostly going to the parks. You're still meeting up. Yeah. <laughs> yes, which... That actually is the way it was, and you can study that. So we have an immense amount of data right now, and this is uh, not only theoretical physics, but yeah. uh, <laughs> and <laughs> fundamental interactions. But if we can use the same mathem- you know, the mathematics to kind of explain in a much more efficient way, even epidemiology or applications to um, kind of away from fundamental interactions. I mean, I, I love that. Yeah. That's what I signed up for. Figuring out how the world works. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, COVID is not a part of how the world works. But uh, hopefully those those variants don't uh, aren't anything to worry about. And uh, <laughs> Pardon me, the, the idea is how to actually prevent, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, so the idea is to use this actually for... Um, for uh, understanding the way you can plan, for example, vaccination strategies. So we studied the recently the uh, interplay between uh, multi-wave pandemics in U.S. and the vaccination strategy, and the paper just been published. I'm just been accepted. It will mm. be coming out in a couple of weeks, and it works really well. So we can see how well U.S. has been doing compared to the disaster that we had in the, in in 2020. Um, yeah, so you can really see uh, how and when um, have the correct vaccination strategy and how that impacts uh, nations. So I think it's, it's a service in this case for the for us, for the community. Yep, yep. Well, Francesco, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks a lot Thank for the beer much. and for the, the chat. Cheers. Cheers. Well, I loved talking to Francesco there and uh, tapping into his his brain and learning a bit about how the universe works and what we still don't know. I find that fascinating. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, go back, listen to the other episodes of the season and uh, tell a friend about the podcast, share it, give us a review on whatever you're using to listen to the podcast. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Next week, the guest will be Professor Susanna Mandrup, and we're going to be talking about fat. My name is Michael McGee. Cheers to science.